I invite you to take a Bible, either your own or one from the pew, if you would like, and turn to Luke chapter 15. It's page 1,241 in the pew Bible, and we're going to read verses 1 to 10. This is the second in a four-part series on Luke chapter 15. We looked at verses 1 and 2 in their wider context last week, and now we'll focus on the two little parables that Jesus gives in response to the criticism that he receives for eating with tax collectors and sinners. Verse 1. Now all the tax gatherers and sinners were coming near him to listen to him. And both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And he told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, if she has ten silver coins... And loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, we live in a world that is very different from the world of John Bunyan 300 years ago or George Whitfield 200 years ago or D.L. Moody 100 years ago. Very, very different world in which to do the kind of work they used to do. And this week, uh, Abraham and I went downtown together and uh, were confronted with one of those remarkable differences. We went to Barnes & Noble bookstore. I don't know if you've been to a major retail bookstore recently of, of that magnitude. It's really quite an overwhelming experience. It takes up about half a block downtown. And it is a remarkable meeting with the overwhelming, relentless, seemingly ever-expanding, aggressive pluralism and diversity of the world in which we live. Every topic, every sport, every vocation, every worldview, every philosophy, every religion you can think of not only has a book or two, but sections of books or two on them. And the feeling I got as I, as I just walked back and forth through this store, looking, just looking, was that it feels very aggressive. It feels very intimidating and it feels pushy. And one of the reasons is because not only do you have representatives of everything you could imagine 
but they are packaged with professional, glossy, slick, attractive covers that make you feel like there's a whole movement and industry and big bucks behind every one of them laying claim on your mind and your attention. And there's 50,000 of them. It's mind-boggling when you let yourself feel that there's persons, there's worldviews, there's convictions and beliefs and standards and values different behind almost every one of these books. Laying claim on Minneapolis. And Barnes & Noble has thousands of stores all over the country. And then there's Baxter's, which we went to next, which is not quite as big. But it's another world. When Bunyan and Whitfield and Moody confronted their culture with Jesus Christ and his supremacy, the competitors were few in Britain and America. Today, if you want to stand up and say, Jesus Christ is the one way to glory and heaven and eternity and God. You got 50,000 competitors. You've got people who are going to say that is the most outrageous thing you could possibly say in contemporary America, that he is the way and the truth and the life. And you get pressed upon and. And aggressively pursued. And if you can't read, that's okay because they got the books on tape and headphones to hear them to see if you want them. It is a remarkable experience. It's kind of our world in microcosm. As I walked through there and just felt this is the place. This is the world in which I must stand up and say what the Apostle Paul said. God Minneapolis, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. God was in Christ. You see Christ, you see the God, the one solitary creator God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And Jesus himself said, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. Outrageous claim. Outrageous claim. We need to be aware of this. We really need to be aware of it. Our situation is a lot more like the Apostle Paul's. Let me let me stress this a minute because, you know, you can easily become discouraged thinking of history as a kind of evolutionary spiral towards one thing. It isn't. It isn't, except in the macro view of God. As we look at it, it is not an evolutionary spiral so that you say, oh, my it was easy in Bunyan's day, and it was a little harder in Whitfield's day, and a little harder in Moody's day. And it's impossible today to stand up and say that Jesus is the only way, because history is moving towards diversity and pluralism and tolerance, and there's no way you can be a Christian like that today. There's a historical mistake there. Big historical mistake. History is longer than 300 years. Did anybody know that? Did anybody know it's longer than... 25 years. It's longer than 300 years. It's at least 2000 years. Did you know that it's a lot longer? But you know what happened 2000 years ago? The Apostle Paul 
who was knocked off his horse by the one and only God who said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. I am the way you thought I was a false Messiah. I am the way he converts Paul and Paul goes to Ephesus, Athens, Corinth, Rome. And you know what those cities were like? Minneapolis. Only worse, a cacophony of sorcery and witchcraft and gods and religions and philosophies and worldviews as various as the caravans going back and forth across the Mediterranean world. We're going back. We're not going anywhere into difficulty. We're just going back to the way the gospel was born and spread and triumphed. How is it possible that in a world like that, where there were tens of thousands of competing little groups of people all thinking they had a corner on the, the gods, that Christianity became the, the empire religion in 300 years. Well, it was blood, it was faithfulness, it was the power of the Holy Spirit, it was preaching, it was signs and wonders, it was a lot of different things. We are called to stand up at work tomorrow and in all kinds of ways down at the park in a in an hour and uh and commend Jesus as the way the truth and the life now here in this text let's see if i can show you why this all this came to my mind while while meditating on this text Jesus is speaking now in verses 1 and 2 or he's there acting in a in a Barnes and Noble type world this morning as he speaks these words. He's with tax gatherers and sinners. And the religious leaders of that day do not like him uh, receiving and eating with them. And they, they indict him and they say, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Challenging Jesus as if to say, why are you doing that? What does this mean? What's going on here? How can you do that? And his answer is spectacular. He might as well have dropped an atomic bomb. Now, you've, you've got to have eyes to see the spectacularness of it. If this answer is true, then he may as well have dropped an atomic bomb. Here he is. It's a little Jewish village. Now, don't don't glorify this and say, this is a Bible, you know. Just just picture this. He, it's a little Jewish village. It might be in Guinea, Bert. Just Just a little Jewish village. Nobody in the world knows this is happening. And there's a dinner, there's a, a lunch happening. And a few people, I don't know how many, a few dozen people probably. No big crowd. And uh, there's some uh, Zacchaeus types who cheat everybody. And everybody knows they got a bad reputation. And they're there. And, and these sinners are probably prostitutes and other people who make their money in ways that are not right. And they're there. And then standing probably around the walls or maybe in the doorway are the Pharisees and the scribes who are always looking for a reason to get down on Jesus. And he is not making any big deal about the badness of these bad people. And he's eating with them and receiving them. Strong words. Receiving and offering his table fellowship, hands, food, ooh, dietary laws. And he's just taking them there. And they are very upset about this. It's no big deal yet, right? There's just a little squabble, a little religious disagreement. Palestinian city out of the way. Nobody knows what's going on here. Insignificant. Probably in China, 
3,000 miles away, there was some big war going on where millions of people's lives were at stake and, and maybe the Native Americans over here were having some big powwow that determined the future of tribes and nobody knows what's going on in Palestine and it looks like this is very insignificant. This is small deal here. And then comes the answer. What are you doing? What are you doing? And Jesus seasons his speech with salt by telling us a parable. He tells a parable. And uh, he says, in effect, that the God of heaven, before whom all the angels bow down in the universe, in this very lunch, at this very table, through these very words, to these very sinners, God is intersecting the world. God is doing something here. He's welcoming sinners. He's bringing them home to repentance. And he's leading all of heaven in a party to celebrate what's going on here. That's the essence of what Jesus is saying. And what's going on in China or in America or South America or in Australia at that moment cannot hold a candle to what's going on here in terms of eternal global significance. The habitation of God is intersecting with the habitation of man and God is being revealed here. The heart of God is being exposed here. That's what these parables are about. These parables, these two parables about the sheep and the coin are Jesus' answer to the Pharisees. What are you doing? Receiving sinners and eating with them. And he's giving an answer that boils down to the fact God is coming into the world to search for sinners. Let's, let's come at it again here for a minute. That's a kind of summary of it. Let's look at it in more Detail. He answers very quietly, thunderously, quietly. The love of God in heaven has entered the world through me and is seeking and finding what belongs to God and is now lost. Or let's let's look at the parables. He says, my first answer to you, Pharisees, is this. When I receive sinners and eat with them, it is a shepherd. It's like a shepherd leaving ninety nine healthy found righteous sheep and going out into the wilderness and finding my lost sheep and putting him on my shoulders and taking him home. It's like a woman. She's probably poor. The silver coin is a drachma and is probably a day's wage. You could buy a sheep with it, probably. It's not a penny. And she's lost it. She's lost a tenth of her income. And uh, she, this is what's happening when I eat with tax collectors and sinners. I'm this woman, and I am lighting a lamp, and I'm taking the broom, and I'm sweeping, and I'm looking for my coin. That's what's happening when I eat with tax collectors and sinners. That's the beginning of the spectacularness. Of this answer. And, and I see on the faces of the Pharisees just a big question mark. And I'm like, I don't get it. What, what has got, 
what do these two parables about seeking lost sheep and a woman seeking what's it got to do with it? I don't get it. Come clean. What's the story? What's the what's the parable got to do with the defilement of your hands with these people? I don't get the connection. I think that's probably the question mark Jesus sees on their face. So he comes clean. Verse seven and verse ten. He says, I tell you that in the same way, that is the same way as in parable, they had this party, this neighborhood party. And everybody got together and celebrated in the same way. There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner. Heard that word. You use that word over one sinner who repents than over ninety nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Verse 10. Same thing. In the same way as in this parable, they had the party. I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, at that moment, I think something happened in the room. I think there was a moment of hushed silence. And in that moment of silence, I think Jesus looked around the room, just right into people's faces. Because at that moment, something had to happen with that question mark on their face. And two, two things could happen to it. Let's just take them one at a time. Two things did happen to it in different people. First thing that happened was this. Those Pharisees are listening to this and they're hearing him say. I'm eating with tax collectors and sinners. It's like a shepherd finding a sheep. Throwing a party. And when that happens, heaven and God and the angels are rejoicing. And what he sees on the face of some of these Pharisees, I don't know if all of them, is that this this question mark begins to harden and narrow into a big, straight exclamation point of no. No. Nobody, nobody can talk like that. Nobody can have the presumption to say that kind of thing right now in this place. This is a Jewish world, or we might say today, this is a Barnes and Noble world. It's blasphemy in a Jewish world and it's presumption and arrogance in a Barnes and Noble world. Nobody can hint even... Parable or no parable, you can't talk like that. You can't start hinting that what happens in heaven is hinging on your eating with tax collectors and sinners. That God's joy is somehow being realized in your joy around this table, in this room, as you receive tax collectors and sinners. And as they come and find fellowship with you, they're finding fellowship with the Father. And as you receive them, God is receiving them. And as their sins are being forgiven here by you, God is receiving and forgiving their sins. Nobody talks like that. No is one big answer. No way will we let you talk like that. And ultimately he was crucified for talking like that. Nobody in a Barnes and Noble world talks like that. That's one thing that he saw. It's not the only thing that he saw. In fact, I think when he saw that, if not on the outside, I think on the inside there were tears. It says over in Mark at one point where that happened, 
He looked out upon them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. Can you bring those two words together in your life? Anger at their hardness of heart and grieved at their hardness of heart. Two things that feel so at odds, but they're both right. They're both right to feel. And I think he felt them right there and inside he wept. And at that moment, you know what he was composing in his mind? The parable of the prodigal son. Longer, more delicate, more emotional, more receptive. And as he watched them through the parable of the prodigal son, that's next week's sermon, he got to the last part, the parable of the elder brother. That's the Pharisee. And that's the way he ended it. And it's a tragic ending. But that's not all he saw in that room. He had just said, uh, I received tax collectors and sinners. They have condemned him. This man eats with tax collectors and sinners and receives them. And he answers back. It's like a, it's like a shepherd finding sheep. It's like a woman finding a coin. And when they come and, and we eat together, it's like a party. And it is a party in heaven. This is happening right now. God is so happy with what's happening right here. And other faces have worship begin to rise in their heart. And they begin to say, if not explicitly, over time, as they come to realize what's going on here, you are the love of God. You are the outstretched arm of God. You are the crook of the shepherd's staff in the wilderness. And I'll feel it now around my neck. You are the broad shoulders where I'm beginning to ride on my way home to the flock of God. There's another group of people that are seeing. I get it. I get it. I get it. He's the bridge. He's the way home. He's the shepherd. You you are the lamp that the woman lit in her dark and dusty house. You are the bristles on the broom on the floor of dirty Barnes and Noble, sweeping around trying to find me back in the, the art books where they have naked women. We men know that they're there, right? We know we know where you can find pornography without going to pornography. And, and he's there. He's there with the long. He was there this week, guys. You're here this morning because he was there. Somebody in this room is here this morning because he was there with the bristles on the broom and you were the dirty little coin peeking at something you weren't supposed to be peeking at and he's just down there sweeping to find you. And you're here. He found you. I know that you are to meet him today. We've got prayer teams ready to pray with you afterwards. I would love to talk to you. There are people that God's been sweeping up this week. People that he's got the crook around their neck and it hurts them a little bit and their conscience is killing them and they want out of this thing. And, and you're in this room right now to find out this is not a noose. This is a shepherd's crook. That's why you're here. That's why he told these parables. There's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. Let me close with three brief implications. Those are the two faces. You're one of those faces this morning. Don't be the hard face. Don't be the face that started with the question mark that hardened into a no exclamation point. Be the face with rising worship and saying, 
Now I get it. Now I get it. Jesus came into the world to be God to me. He came into the world to receive me. He came into the world to forgive me, to find me, to sweep me up out of the dirt and dust of my lost condition. Implication number one or application number one. Repentance is necessary. Yes, yes, yes. Verse seven. There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. That is, who turns away from sin and holds on and goes into the shepherd and loves him and trusts him and just gives yourself up to him. But isn't it interesting that the demand for repentance is sort of indirectly shown. And the main thing here is the pursuit. It's the pursuit. It's repentance is being wooed and won and created by Jesus behavior, behavior. That's the way this whole thing got started. He didn't start with his words. He started with the behavior. He comes into a house and for some reason, these tax gatherers and these low life sinner types flock to him. And he doesn't push them away or hold his nose or brush them off. He receives them. He starts to eat with them. This is God. This is the gospel. This is the heart of the Father. And it is designed to awaken repentance. And if you want to read the kind of thing that he would say to a tax collector or a prostitute, just back up a few verses and read verses 25 to 33 of chapter 14. That was last night, last Sunday night's message. But you don't need to do that now. Know that his behavior is designed to reach out and embrace sinners and draw them in. And then repentance, feeling the wooing of God and the mercy of God and the grace of God recognizes that he's worth it. He's worth whatever you'd have to change. Second implication. In spite of the majesty and the holiness and the universal power and the greatness and the astonishing majesty of God, he cares individually about you and every single individual that you know, one at a time, one at a time. In a big church like this, we we are prone to begin to think of significant spiritual activity as evidenced in crowds. And if you don't have a big crowd, God's not as, as much at work. Parables like this will not let something like that stand. This text says that if you stayed away this morning to visit a, a hurting person from you stayed away from this, you did the right thing. OK, this this text says the big gatherings of the ninety nine are OK and good. I'll talk more about that. One more point. But here, God, God in Christ is out reconciling an individual down in Elliott Park right now. Somebody's probably talking to somebody right now down in Elliott Park getting set up for the sound or whatever we're going to do down there. How it works, I don't know. But somebody's down there right now. And if they're talking to one person, that's as important, maybe more important than what I'm doing right now, talking to what? 700? 800? You need to feel that. You are one person. You are one person, an almighty God who has big business to tend to. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. He guides every electron in every molecule. He raises kings and he puts down kings. He's in charge of that big shindig over in China where all the women are going to get together. And he's running the world. He's running the world. And most of all, he cares about one person at a time. One person at a time. Just 
Just write in. So when you say, oh, I want to be significant, I want my life to count, and only know one or two unbelievers, it's all you need to know to make heaven shake. Heaven? We're talking heaven, not little teeny weeny globe with only six billion people on it. We're talking heaven rejoicing over that visit this afternoon or over lunch tomorrow. You want to know significance in your life? Forget about crowds. Crowds are an ego trip most of the time. It's people, one at a time, that God is very much taken up with. That's point number two. Closing, closing observation. What about the worship of the 99? That's us right now, right? What about the worship of the 99 who are already in the fold? Jesus says there's more joy in heaven over one sinner out there who repents than over the 99 who don't need repentance. Does that mean that he does not delight in what we're doing right now? Does that mean that Jesus is not excited in heaven right now about this worship service? Or he's sort of neutral about it? He's sort of, hmm. But the real action is in Elliott Park or wherever. How does he feel about it? Now, here's my answer to that question. No, he is not indifferent and he's not neutral and he's very excited about this meeting right now. Not just because there's some unbelievers here who were swept into this service this week by the low, loving, incarnate, pursuing broom of God. But also because this is what the sheep gets rescued for. The only reason anybody is lost is because they're not doing this. They're not worshiping. They don't know the true God. They don't love the people of God. They don't fellowship with God and his people. They're out doing their own thing, writing their own laws, plummeting towards perdition. And the reason God goes after them is so that they can enjoy fellowship with him called worship. John 4:23. He is seeking such to worship. Him. You can't say God is indifferent to worship if the very goal of personal evangelism is worship, which it is. However, let's make sure we say this right now. We live in a world where most people do not have a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And if therefore we get so caught up and fascinated and enjoying this little experience of worship on Sunday morning that we don't have a heart to include them in it at risk and cost to our lives and convenience, you know what? We're not worshiping the God of Luke 15. And it's scary to think what he might think of our, of our sacrifices and what they might smell like. The test of the authenticity of Sunday, remember this one, is Monday. The test of the authenticity of my affection for God right now, right now as I preach. And I love him. I love him. I love the looks on your faces. I love the fellowship of God's people. I love my work. I love the Bible. 
I love the gospel and I might be deceived and a liar. And the test is, do I love unbelievers? Do I want them to share it? Is it real enough to get me off my can talking to them with earnestness and yearning? If I can't and don't, the big problem is not that there's some little thing that needs to be fixed there. The big problem is, who do I love in my worship? What God am I beholding that I can have such a ravished experience of him and let that person go to hell? What kind of worship is that? What kind of God is that? It is not the God of Luke 15. So my closing exhortation is for the sake of true worship here and around the world, for the sake of the true worship of God, let us leave the 90 and 9 now and go eat with tax collectors and sinners this week. I want to close like this. Uh, you can just keep your eyes open. I said I was going to have you bow, but just keep our eyes open. I'm going to have some people stand in a minute. A lot of people are going to stand. So don't think you're going to be by yourself. And what, what I want you to stand is just so I can focus prayer for you. And you will remember, I stood on Sunday and that will help you this week. And, and the people that are going to stand is this. And, and, I, and I don't want everybody to stand. And it isn't an indictment if you don't stand. It, it's a special burden that you feel. You've, God's been doing something recently to give you a special burden for somebody. For me, I could name the person, but I just want to be delicate. I've got a special burden for a couple of people that are lost. And I want them to be saved. I want them to be with me in eternity. Now, I want wisdom to know how to press and how to not press, how to do. I just, I need wisdom. That's, I'm going to pray for that. And a lot of you have this. Somebody, it's a relative, it's a friend, it's a neighbor or whatever, just a special kind of urgency has been on you that is probably of God. And uh, you'd like me to pray with you and we pray for each other that in the next week or two, this message, this wonderful Christ would so fill you as to create a, an opportunity for some good uh, time of testimony and prayer, perhaps. So if there's somebody in your life that you carry a burden like that for, stand up right now, would you? Greg, why don't you, uh, where's Greg? We're going to sing here in a, in a minute. And uh, I want to just pray for you. And then uh, when we're done praying, I'll have the rest stand. And those who are sitting, pray earnestly. And it may be that God will birth in you right now such a a burden for somebody. But right here are this week's or the next couple of weeks people whom God seems to have been giving something special for to uh, to pray toward, to work toward uh, a sheep that's out there, a coin that's in the dirt. And uh, there's a light to be lit. There's a broom to be swept. And uh, I want to pray for you. And then the uh, team will sing as we close. And you, you can linger and pray. You can come pray with the prayer teams. You can head off to the picnic and just keep going in the spirit, however you want to take your leave. Let's pray. Father, I want to pray for two groups of people now. One is the group of people that you swept in here today who need the gospel and who have heard it and who are being drawn mightily by you to trust Christ and forsake sin and find forgiveness and be received by the Father and have eternal life through Christ. 
And I ask that that transaction would be completed now. And I pray now, Lord, for those who are standing especially, that those whom they have in their minds right now, even as I pray and as we collectively, as a congregation, seven, eight hundred prayers going up to you, that right now, wherever those people are, they would sense God in their lives. That they would be jolted in whatever their need is. Whatever sin they need to break free from. Whatever wrestlings with unbelief they need to break out of. May they feel you. Sense you. And then providentially, Lord, work the circumstances out in the coming couple of weeks. So that these people who are standing would find themselves in remarkably God-orchestrated circumstances to bear a saving witness to Christ. Don't let them be anxious, Lord. Don't let them feel guilty about the timing. The Bible says don't be anxious about what you should say in that day. The Holy Spirit will tell you. He doesn't want us to carry around that load. Lord, free them. May they just bask themselves in having been welcomed to the table. And may they be able to commend it because it is so satisfying to them. And now let's all stand together. Father, all of us who are in this room, are sensing your tug to enjoy your love more and to commend it more. And as many of us go down to the park, take us in the power of the Spirit. May we be good examples in the city of those who love you and represent your name. And now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And all the people said,